Well, it's an exciting morning already, sharing in communion and baptism. It's incredible. Yeah. And to be a part of God's church and to be renewed and refreshed every time we come together. And certainly this morning I've experienced that by being with all of you, but also experiencing what we've experienced thus far. Yeah. Well, and we have something else that we just need to quickly celebrate. Yes. Today is Janie Martin's 80th birthday. Really? Happy All right. birthday, Janie. If you don't know Janie, how many years have you been serving us now as part of our office staff team as a volunteer? 30 years in December. Yeah. Man, that's incredible. What a tenure. We're so grateful for you, Janie. Happy birthday. You want to sing? We can sing. I, I, if I can start us. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Janie. Happy birthday to you. All right. Well, I've been enjoying this series of messages that we've been in. You have. I have. I've been enjoying the study that we've been doing in, in these messages and just the, the process of thinking about the difference between being carnally minded and spiritually minded. Yeah, it's been very helpful to go back over these truths in 1 Corinthians. And at the same time, it's uh, been very difficult when you look at a church that has all of these problems and difficulties. You wonder sometimes, Lord, you know, can we really get to where you want us to be? Mm. And certainly through the Holy Spirit's power and through his word, we can. Absolutely. So yeah. I'm looking forward for the challenge that we're going to receive this morning. So, Amen. Well, we're going to jump right into the word of God this morning. So if you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you do, open with us to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's going to be the primary text for our time together in the word this morning. And as you open your Bible there, uh, one of the things that you can expect to see in the passage this morning is this whole idea of the Lord's Supper or communion, which we just shared together this morning. And I hope that in this you'll see the deeper issues that Paul is driving at concerning the church. And, you know, when it comes to us in the church um, and you see a church with so many challenges, I think part of God's desire in this passage as we read is it's relatable. We can see sometimes, if, if the Lord gives us grace, we can see through the failures of someone else and the example of someone else, our own failures and something God is trying to get our attention on as well. So let's read the word of God together. We're going to start in verse 17, and uh, we're going to read 17 through 34 just to get this in our minds as we start. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, Paul writes, now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place... 
it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Then Paul goes into this next section here, and it's very reflective of the same words that Jesus spoke in the Gospels in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and Luke 22 when he instituted the Lord's Supper. Paul continues, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Listen, church. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Do it, but examine yourself. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Or another translation, many have died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. That's the word of the Lord. The church at Corinth had many issues. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you've heard many of those issues. But Paul's rebuke in this text exposes the main problem that the church had. He actually addresses this main problem again in 1 Corinthians 13. What was the problem? Well, to understand the problem, Pastor Jerry, we need to understand what was going on in Corinth when Paul wrote this letter. Yeah, one of the practices of the early church was the practice of what came to be known as a love feast. We, we know this from uh, the scripture, uh, for example, in Jude 1.12. It says, there are spots in your love feast in Jude 1.12. Mm-hmm. So it was a regular practice of the church for the church to gather for these love feasts. Uh, we also know it from what the early church fathers have said, mm-hmm. that these love feasts, these incredible meals that they would bring together and have together as a celebration of their love uh, for God and their love for one another was just a normal practice of the church, of the early church. 
Uh, we, we know the origins of the love feast. You may recall, go back to Acts chapter 2. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, uh, Pentecost came. Pentecost was when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to dwell mm -hmm. in believers. And what happened was is that the people were moved by the Holy Spirit to start selling their properties and their goods. And then they would bring the proceeds from those cells and they would lay the proceeds at the apostles' feet. And then those gifts that were laid at the apostles' feet were then being used to provide for the needs of the church family, which mm -hmm. was a large group of people there in the beginning because mm -hmm. 3,000 were saved in a, day. in a day on the day of Pentecost. And so, and one of those needs was the most important need you gotta you're gonna survive you gotta eat yeah what's the saying we're three meals away from anarchy yeah exactly you gotta have some food you gotta have some food and so that was one of the uh, needs that was being met so the bible tells us in acts that they broke bread from house to house and also tells us that there was this daily distribution of food that really was beyond the love feast that was being made to take care of the widows that were in the church who were in dire need uh, many of them were destitute if they didn't have the church to support them then uh, they they wouldn't have had a meal right and so this was the origin of what we know about the love feast well and then later persecution came to jerusalem and it caused the church to spread out and go to other areas and when that happened uh it went to other regions even as far as like greece and the tradition of the love feast continued yeah. in those areas. And didn't it was stop. it didn't stop. And it was a great expression of love in the church as the rich and the poor and the free and the slave and the locals and the strangers, those with families and the widows and the fatherless and the Jews and the Gentiles alike came together to share this meal with one another. It was an incredible expression of love. Their eating together was proof of their love for one another and that's why the meals were called love feasts and there was really nothing like it in their society at the time no it was going against culture for people from whether you're poor whether you're rich whether you're a jew whether you're a gentile you know no matter what your background was no matter what your gender was for you to come together for this meal you know, was totally counterculture. Yeah, you think about a high school situation and people mixing tables like the jocks and the nerds and all that, you know, the classic illustration. Well, imagine that like times a hundred, like how, how countercultural this would have been for the church to have these practices. And during these feasts, the church would celebrate. It was a celebration. It was a feast. They would celebrate God's love for them as they remembered the covenant that he made with them through Jesus Christ. And as part of the feast, the Lord's Supper would be observed during the feast. Yeah, the most common time for them to serve the Lord's Supper was not in a service like we did this morning. Right. The most common time for them to serve the Lord's Supper would have been during one of these feasts. And we, re we read about it this morning. It's in the, the Gospels, all the Gospels, where Jesus instituted this supper. He instituted it during a Passover meal, mm -hmm. which could have been a love feast, right? right. The first love feast Absolutely. could have been that Passover meal that he was sharing with his disciples. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, during this meal, he breaks out this new practice mm -hmm. that he makes it really clear he wants his disciple to continue this practice in the future. He doesn't tell them how many times a, a year to practice it. He, he just 
as often as you do it, but he made it really clear this was important for the church to continue to have this practice. And so during the meal, as we read, he, he, began, he just saw all of a sudden, he, he served them, he served them bread, and he served them wine, and he told his disciples that the bread and wine represented his body and his blood, and he told them to eat the bread and drink the wine and remember the sacrifice through this physical image. Remember the sacrifice that I am making for you. Now, this is very interesting because the normal covenant between two people would have been recorded on a piece of parchment. Mm -hmm. That's the way you would record that a covenant had been made. And we still do, uh, do this today when uh, a man and a woman come together and get married, what do they do? Sign that they marriage license. They sign the wedding license. Well, instead of using a parchment deed, mm -hmm. and we understand why he didn't. Right. It, it wasn't reproducible. Yeah, it, it wouldn't have lasted. Yeah. Instead of using the parchment deed as a sign of the covenant that he was making with his disciples, Jesus used bread and wine. Mm -hmm. I mean, what an incredible idea. Yeah. Something that we could continue to do age after age, decade after de decade, century after century, and then we did it this morning in obedience to what Jesus said. So by eating the bread and drinking the wine, the disciples... They were signing the covenant. Yeah. That was their part in entering into it. Jesus himself also participated in that. Every time they would do it in the future, it was going to be a reminder that they had signed the covenant right. and a reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus made for them to be a part of this covenant between God and man. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. So after Jesus led them to do this, he did something else. Do you remember what he did? He washed their feet. Mm -hmm. Now, he didn't tell us or tell his disciples that foot washings were also to be a part of the regular practice. Right. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. No. But he was taking something that was very important in that day and age. And because, common. Yeah, because you were walking around in sandals and dirt right. all the time. And so one of the ways that, you know, you needed to cleanse your feet often. Yeah. And sometimes you did it for yourself, mm -hmm. but at times someone would do it for you. Yeah. And when someone did that for you, when they, your filthy feet, when they washed your feet, if you went to their house and all of a sudden the host of the house broke out some water and washed your feet, I mean, there wasn't a better way to communicate how much you cared for the person that you were caring for then by washing their feet. So the love feast and the observance of the Lord's Supper was a beautiful way that the church celebrated their fellowship first with the Lord and then their fellowship with one another. And this is the context of this whole passage. Right, and it's beautiful. It's so loving. And what a brilliant strategy that Jesus came up with. And it was in this context of the love feast and the Lord's Supper that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. So, with this setting in mind, what was the main problem with the church in Corinth? Well, Paul observed it. He identified it. What was occurring at the church in Corinth made a mockery of the love feast and of the Lord's Supper. And it was a terrible offense. A terrible offense to the Lord and a terrible offense to the saints. 
at their love feast, there was not enough food for the poorest among them because some of the richest among them were not waiting for the poor to be served. As a result, some were leaving the feast hungry while others were stuffing themselves with food. What made this even more offensive is that this carnal, selfish act was taking place as the poor and the rich, the hungry and the full were sharing in the Lord's Supper. And when Paul wrote about that, he stops and says, what? What? I mean, what other words are there? Paul rebuked them. Yeah, his rebuke was incredible. I mean, we read these verses and we read over them and we read them in our daily Bible reading. Our tendency is not to really understand how serious this mm. rebuke was. But this is one of the most serious rebukes uh, in the New Testament yeah. that we have. Mm -hmm. Ananias and Sapphira would mm -hmm. have been probably at the top of the list mm -hmm. in the book of Acts. But this is close behind it. Yeah, this is right behind it. And so he shares a word of prophecy with them in this letter. And it's been preserved for us to read and also to take it very seriously ourselves. He prophesied that these hypocrites, you know, these folks that were coming to this love feast, but instead of waiting on those who were poor to eat, they were filling themselves when they still had food at home they could have eaten. Mm -hmm. And so people were going away hungry. He prophesied that these hypocrites in the church would be disciplined by the Lord. Yeah. In fact, he said, and he knew some of the problems that were going on in the church as far as illness and sickness mm -hmm. and weakness. He said, some of you are already being disciplined. <laughs> mm -hmm. But he also said, if you don't stop this, you're going to be disciplined by the Lord. You're going to be chastened by the Lord. Mm -hmm. He said some had become weak and sick because of their irreverent or loveless behavior. And he even said that some of them, some of them who were guilty had already passed away. They'd already had the funeral form. They'd wow. already died. Wow. What a rebuke. So mm -hmm. Paul told them that the Lord was taking this very seriously. Yeah. I don't think they regarded it as being very serious. No. I, I think they were taking it lightly, like they were so many problems that were in the church. But Paul says, hey, look, this is how serious the Lord is taking this. He, and he's doing this, you know, not to punish you. He's doing this to correct you, just as a father loves his children mm -hmm. and applies discipline to correct his children. That's what God's doing for you. Yeah, and in this correction, in this rebuke that Paul gave the church, he, he was familiar with the church. He knew the situations going on, and he knew the people by name. He had helped plant this church, oh, yeah. and he was the one who ministered in this church. You know, in this passage, he could have called them out by name. He does in other passages. He does call certain people out. Yeah. I hear that we have that buzz. I'm going to wait just a second, see if we can resolve that. We're just getting warmed up. Hey, I think we got it. So Paul could have listed these people by name. He could have exposed who they were. But, you know, I think it's very wise and, and helps us really apply this passage better. Because instead of listing them by name, what Paul does is he tells the entire church to examine themselves. Yeah. To examine themselves before they come to this love feast before the Lord. He told them to wait for one another until the food had been served to everyone. He told them that if they had plenty at home, I, I, this interests me, if you have plenty at home, wait 
and eat before you come to the love feast so that there will be plenty of food for those who are poor. Um, he told them there were other issues that needed to be addressed with the leadership of the church, but that he would address those issues on his next visit with them. And he told them that there are practices needed to, to change, and that if their practices didn't change, that they were going to continue to experience the judgment of God. Oh my goodness, I mean, aren't you glad that God doesn't discipline his children anymore? I mean, if you listen to some popular teachers, this is something that passed away with the apostles like the gifts of the Spirit. Right. And the Lord has changed, and he no longer disciplines his children any longer. Uh, the truth is, this yeah. is a story about what God did in the New Testament church yeah. of Corinth. The church that was in the covenant relationship, that was sharing in the Lord's Supper as the signature of that covenant, remembering that covenant. And in that context, Paul told them to wake up because their behavior was bringing upon themselves the judgment of God. And they were experiencing God's discipline because of what they were doing, their hypocrisy and their unloving actions. So the Lord hadn't changed. So what lessons can we take away from this particular story? You've actually heard it twice now, once in the reading and now once as we retold it and emphasized certain things. What lessons can we learn in our church today from this particular story? Well, the first thing that we can learn, and I'll use an IME statement, mm -hmm is that I can be a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. And since I'm preaching, I'll say we can all be hypocrites. Mm -hmm. But I can be a hypocrite. I can be like these folks in Corinth. I can be professing outwardly, you know, that I'm a follower of Jesus, that Jesus is my Lord, that I love God, but I can be very loveless mm -hmm. in the way that I treat my brothers and sisters in Christ beginning with the members of my own family or with those that are attending my local church or those who are outside of my local church. So we can be hypocrites. That's the first lesson that we need to learn from this, mm -hmm. that it's possible for us to be this way. Yeah. Not only can I be a hypocrite, but I can also be blind to my hypocrisy and not even be aware that I'm being a hypocrite. We can all do that. We can be blind to our hypocrisy and not even be aware that we're being hypocrites. We can blind ourselves by justifying our selfish conduct. We justify it like we're the exception to the rule. You know, oh, well, we've got little kids, so. Or it's, we had to work late last night, so. Or it's been a rough month, so. Or we've just gotten over an illness, so. Or money's been tighter recently, so. Or we have another event we have to get to, so. You, you fill in the excuse. Maybe you can hear this coming out of your own mouth, these kind of phrases where we justify our behavior. We excuse ourselves from what God calls us to do to invest in a culture of love. We excuse ourselves. We're the exception to the rule. We don't need to do this. Others may need to do this. I don't need to do this. And so I can be blind to my own hypocrisy. And then that third lesson we can learn from this is that we can be suffering God's judgment for our hypocrisy and not even know it. I mean, they were suffering. That's a scary thought. Yeah, some were sick. Some had even died. That's pretty serious. 
And Paul is the one who's making them aware that what you're experiencing is the result, not just of the natural order of things, but this was, this was a result of God's activity, mm-hmm. this consequence that, that you're personally experiencing in your life. And so, uh, and the reason they were suffering was because of their hypocritical behavior and their unloving behavior. And so what they needed to do and what Paul wanted them to do, he was not being harsh with them just to be harsh. He was being harsh with them because he wanted them to wake up. Yeah. He wanted them to connect the dots and realize that they were experiencing God's discipline because he wanted them to take this serious enough mm. that they would hear his words and they would follow him and follow the Lord Jesus and they would repent in the way that they were relating to God's children. Uh, so if we're in this place where we're being disciplined by the Lord, we may need a wake-up call. Yeah. We, we may need someone to tell us, have you considered the possibility that what you're suffering is the hand of God mm. because of your hypocritical conduct mm-hmm. or behavior? Yeah. And it's very common for us when the elders of the church are called to pray for someone, we typically ask the person that we're praying for is, who is ill, do you know what the purpose is of this illness that you're dealing with? And, and when they, when they you know, answer, they, a lot of times people don't know, the, you know what we're asking. And you say, well, you know, it, do, you, do you feel, is there anything in your life that you think this illness could be attributed to? Mm-hmm. Whether it's some way that you're mistreating your body or it's, it's some way that you're mistreating your brothers and sisters, maybe in your family or in Christ, and the Lord's trying to get your attention. Mm-hmm. And that's when we, you know, it gets serious. Mm-hmm. You know, when we as elders ask that, that kind of question. Yeah. And so it's very important that we become aware if we're, if we're suffering, and, and the reason we're suffering, whatever the suffering might be, is due to, due to the Lord's chastening. We need to know it. Yeah. Because that becomes a real motivation to go, okay, what do I need to change here in order to get things right? Yeah, and we're not going to know it unless we're open to the possibility. We have to, we have to believe that this, is, that this is what God does. This he is hasn't how he changed. relates to He's his He's still children. operating this way. Yeah, and so we've got to do that. You know, one more thing about this issue of judgment and condemnation Paul makes it clear in here the reason for God's judgment for the Christian we're talking about for the Christian his discipline is because he doesn't want them to experience the condemnation of the world you're no longer under condemnation you're not going to experience the future judgment in heaven and I think sometimes we need to be clear on that if you're in Christ then you don't have to worry about that condemnation at the great white throne of judgment that's coming in the future for all people you've been set free from that judgment But we said this early on in the series, what we need is once the Lord convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and it leads us to repentance, and we become regenerated, new new creations in Christ, we need a second work of the Holy Spirit to convict us that we are carnal, and that that carnality is impacting our lives, and that God will judge us if we don't repent of that carnality and turn back to Him and be spiritually minded about these issues. So don't confuse those two. But if you feel that weight going, there's, no, there's something not right in my life. Am I experiencing the Lord's judgment in my life because there's something not right? Don't, don't tie that if you are in Christ. If you know you are in Christ, don't tie that to your salvation. Tie that to what God is trying to do to get you to become more like Jesus. And start being more like him. Receive his grace to do it. Well, the fourth 
thing that we can learn is the Lord wants his children to develop a culture of love in their local church. That's clear in this story, isn't it? I mean, that what that Paul does, that is about the love issue. You understand that, right? It's about the lack of, I mean, they call it a love feast. That's where this is so hypocritical. It's a love feast and you're letting the poor walk away hungry while the rich are filling their bellies. And it's interesting that Paul's solution for this food shortage at the love feast was that if you have food at your house, you should eat before you come. Okay, I'm a very practically minded person. So when I think about events and things that are going on, a lot of times what runs through my head is, do we need that? Do we need to go? What are we going to get at that? Is this going to be the best thing for our family right now? Do you hear the carnality in those statements? Very car- Paul says, eat at your house and then come to the feast. And don't eat at the feast. That doesn't sound very practical. Like, I'm going to make a dinner at home. And then if I'm rich, I'm probably going to make some more food. Take it to the feast so I can share it with those who are poor. And then not eat at the feast. That does not sound practical. But it sounds very loving. And you know what? Until we believe that we all have a part to play. 1 Corinthians 12 is coming next in this, in this series. of, And Paul says, this is a team sport. You're members of the same body. Until you believe that you have a part to play and your contribution matters. And the church can't be successful at creating this culture of love in the church without you doing your part. Until you believe that, you're going to keep acting carnally about things like these love feasts. Yeah, you're going to make self-interest, self-centered decisions. Yeah, about your participation, about how you relate to another person, about the relationships, about the food, about what you do at an event when you show up. It's going to all be me, me, me. And you need to repent of that. You need to repent of that carnality. It's got to be about him And it's got to be about love. I mean, Jesus said it in John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. He repeats it. And then he repeats it again. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, from a carnal standpoint, it doesn't make sense to prepare food, and then prepare food, and then eat the meal. But from a spiritual standpoint... From a love standpoint, it makes perfect sense to yield my rights for the sake of others. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what he was asking them to do here in this particular passage of Scripture. And, uh, you know, we face these kind of decisions all of the time. And we battle with our flesh. Mm-hmm. And are we going to serve the self-interest of our flesh? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to be who we are in Christ? Yeah. And fulfill it. our identity in Christ? Yeah. And this group of folks was failing miserably. Very miserably. And as a result, they were suffering a great deal. The fifth lesson that we can learn from this is that the Lord will discipline his children in his church who resist this culture of love. In Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, it says it pretty clearly. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. You know, the Lord uses a variety of means to uh, discipline us as his children besides illness and death. Uh, uh, He may use financial loss in order to discipline his children. He may use a loss of favor in a relationship or a loss of favor 
with someone in authority to discipline his children. He may use uh, conflict in relationships that just never gets resolved in order to discipline his children. He uses civil authorities yeah. to punish us. And he has all these means. He has all these means at his disposal and through his power that he can use to discipline his children. But and not every sickness or problem that we experience is necessarily his discipline. No, this was an obvious one. Mm -hmm. Paul pointed it out. He prophesied it. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, uh, it's very personal. We each individually have to go, you know, Lord, this is a difficult circumstance I'm going mm -hmm. through. Are, are you allowing this to happen to get my attention about something that's wrong in my life? Mm -hmm. I think the first time I ever asked that question was probably when I was uh, a senior in high school. And uh, it was uh, the fourth game of my senior year in high school. And one of my goals and aspirations was to play college basketball. And I was having a really good season the first three games. And, but in the fourth game, we were playing our arch rival, Midwest City High School. And uh, I went into that game, I was averaging 19 points a game. And I was really looking forward to that game. Well, I got really three quick fouls in the first half. Mm. And I had to set out. And I got cold. My body got cold. I didn't warm up properly. So at the beginning of the second half, I went into the game. First time down the court, I was rushing the ball up the floor as the point guard. I pulled up at the free throw line to shoot a jump shot, and I felt this excruciating pain in my foot. Mm -hmm. And basically, that injury, uh, it didn't end my season, but it limited me greatly. Mm -hmm. And as a result, uh, I, I went off the uh, charts of anyone who was looking for, you know, a point guard to play on their team in college. Mm. And I didn't get that. But that injury caused me to look at the, you know, and ask the question, Lord, are you, did you allow this to happen in order to get my attention about something in my life? Mm -hmm. And what the Lord showed me was, yes, mm. I, I did. <laughs> and what he showed me was, was at that time in my life, I was still more focused on promoting me mm -hmm. and my success than I was the Lord and his success. Mm -hmm. And so the Lord used that, just getting before him and saying, Lord, are you using this to get my attention about something in my soul, something in my conduct, my behavior that you want to change? It's very important that all of us uh, do this. But no, you know, not every sickness is uh, a result of some sin in our life. Uh, but we should all examine ourselves. And one of the best ways to examine ourselves before we partake of communion is just ask, you know, Lord, how am I doing in loving mm -hmm. my wife? Mm -hmm. How am I doing in loving my children? It starts with the family. Mm -hmm. How am I doing with loving my brothers and sisters in Christ? Mm -hmm. It's a great question to ask before we take communion. And then you let the Spirit of the Lord speak to you about whatever it is uh, that he wants to speak to you about. Yeah. Well, there's a sixth and final lesson that we can learn from this story. The Lord appoints elders in his church to lead his church to develop this culture of love. In Titus 1, 5, Paul wrote, and he said, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. 
You know, it takes leaders like Paul to create the culture of love and that leads to discipleship in a church because love is the biblical foundation yeah. for disciple-making culture. And Jesus is the one who established that. We read that verse just a few moments ago. And we need leaders like Paul. Yeah. We need people who can lead the way and move us in that direction. They can't do it on their own. No. It's a team sport, and we are the members of the body of Christ. It's all of us. But those leaders have a part to play in helping the church move in that direction. For example, those leaders must be living examples of the culture of love. That's what the elders are called to be. That's what the deacons are called to be, yeah. living examples of the culture of love. They must have the right vision for the church to have this culture of love. They can't be aiming at the wrong thing. They can't be aiming at something other than what Jesus wants them aiming at. And that first thing, that foundational thing has to be a culture of love. And we need leaders who are courageous to rebuke those members whose conduct is ruining the culture of love and i mean that literally it's ruining that culture it's amazing you should never underestimate the power of a deposit into the culture of love even a small one even one that you think is unseen how the holy spirit uses that but at the same time you should have never underestimate the cancer of someone who is working against that culture and it's one of the reasons why we just said in point five god is willing to discipline those people God is willing to ju bring judgment on those people because he's so serious about the culture of love being established in his church. Um, and so we should never underestimate the power of the deposit or the power of somebody working against that culture and ruining it. Yeah, so it's an incredible responsibility to become an elder in a church. It is. If you're supposed to be the example of this culture of love, that's a tremendous responsibility for any one person to bear yeah we're gonna need his grace yeah we need his grace in order to do it mm -hmm. and we need one another in order to encourage each other in this culture of love because mm -hmm. shepherding people is not an easy job right you know people don't always just you know when you say hey you know you ought to repent of this they don't always just go oh okay yeah you know mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not an easy job to to be an elder and lead people and care for people and watch after their needs uh, so many times people in a congregation have expectations that we can't righteously fulfill mm -hmm. you know they would like for us to change something that for them mm -hmm. and we can't just change things for an individual mm -hmm. when we're leading a group of people or there's some 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 other way that we don't fulfill people's expectations and so this is very very challenging and that's one of the reasons why in the new testament in the epistles that for the role of elders in the church you got a lengthy list of qualifications that are very specific mm -hmm. but it all comes back to this is is the person you're considering to be an elder are they living out this culture of love in their own personal life right and i remember you know back when we started making this uh shift toward discipleship and uh you know i was trying to lead the way this is about 2010 2011 mm -hmm. and uh, so how old were you then how old was I? I don't know. How old are you now? 35. 35 minus 12. Okay. And so, you know, you, you know, and, and so uh, I know, never mind. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, we started talking about this. What does that look like? And we started talking about small groups. We started talking about one-on-one -on -one discipleship. And, you know, we started talking about the sacrifice that would mean for us as elders 
in order to lead this in the church. And one of the first things I said was, if we're going to have small groups, I guess I better start one. Yeah. And I said, you know what? I live in Edmond, though. Mm -hmm. And so I think I better start it up there mm -hmm. because I knew that it was going to be more than a group. I was going to have to personally invest in the people's lives that were in the group. And 35 minutes was too big of a distance. Did, oh, yeah, to really be engaged in relationally the way I needed to be. Mm -hmm. And so that was the starting point. And, and then I realized it was more than a group. I had to be spending time with these people in my group, outside a group, whether it was by phone call, by text, or by setting up regular meetings or whatever. And, and you were going through school at the time. Yep, I remember. And, uh, and so you started a group. And I remember us having a conversation about this sacrifice that it was going to take to really love people. Yeah. And do you remember your response? Well, I mean, I remember feeling like, you know, because of school, people are just too busy to make this kind of investment. Exactly. And I, because I was feeling very busy and I was counting the cost of what does this require to invest in a culture of love. And I'm going, well, and I was carnally minded. I'll admit that for sure. And I'm going... Yeah, I just don't think I can make it happen. You just don't have enough time. No. And really, at that point, I remember you saying to me, you really didn't want to ask other people to have another meeting in their week. Because right. we were talking about having meetings outside of our small group. Right. Because how are you going to love people if you're not checking up on them after the group is over, yeah. if you're a leader of the group? Yeah. And so, at some point, though, that changed for you. Oh, drastically. I mean, now one of my greatest joys is the time I get with Caleb and Jeremy and there's others. I'm just seeing them right now, but that meet up on Wednesday nights with me and the one-to-one the -one meetings I get. Joe and I are meeting for coffee on Tuesdays right now. And I mean, all, my, my week is full of meetings and I'm always now, I'm going, how do I make sure I narrow down what I got to get done because I need to go have these meetings with people. I want to go get with them and invest in this culture of love. So the point is, is that if we're going to have this culture of love in our church, we've got to have elders mm. who have this culture of love living it out in their own lives. And, and I'm grateful to say that we have a group of men that are sincere in developing this culture of love in their own lives first and then helping to lead it in the life of our church. It's interesting in this passage that Paul didn't address the elders directly. Mm. And, and it's, there's some unanswered questions there. Yeah. Because there's other letters where he really addresses the elders of the church. Directly. Very directly. And, you know, maybe there weren't elders yet. Maybe Because not. this church had only been in existence for a few years. And so maybe there wasn't anyone yet who had been... A, you know appointed to be an elder mm -hmm. maybe there were elders and they weren't leading well maybe the church was just you know maybe the elders were leading well but the sheep were not willing to follow their lead right you know because they had their own agendas yeah that they were seeking to we don't know what the problem was but it's interesting to me that he didn't address the elders here. no he didn't but whatever the problem was Leadership was needed to yeah. get the church strong in leadership yeah. this is strong leadership yes I mean when you tell them hey you know why you're sick it's because you got sin in your life. That's Ooh. pretty strong leadership. Yeah. But that's exactly what Paul did. In fact, that loved one that you had that died, that was because they were being loveless toward their brothers and sisters in Christ. Wow. That's pretty strong leadership. Very strong. That's you know, pretty offensive. And they needed help to get things set in order. Oh, yeah. Like things were so out of order in the church, and they needed that kind of strong leadership to help them set things in order. And unfortunately, most churches don't have someone like Paul uh, who can lead their elders to set things in order, but we are the body of Christ and we have everything we need in Christ. His Holy Spirit is in us. And so the Lord appoints elders in his church to lead his church to develop this culture of love. Now, Brandon knows this and it's something that I hope that you remember as I make this transition from being your senior pastor, you know, moving into whatever the Lord has for me in my life. 
uh, it's something I, I, I say it, and, and, and people at times don't know how to interpret it. But I tell people that I personally have a substance abuse problem. And the substance that I'm addicted to is this culture of love in the body of Christ. I mean, it's so important to me uh, based upon the Word of God mm-hmm. and what I see in, the, in, in these admonitions. It, it, this culture of love is much more important to me than the church budget. Yeah. It's much more important to me than the attendance and, and the growth of the church. It's, this culture of love is, is more important to me than the conditions of our buildings. All of those things are important. But to me, this culture of love is what's most important. Mm. I believe that when a church develops the culture of love that God wants us to have, that all of these other things just sort of tend to take care of themselves. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and I think we've seen that. Yeah, it stops becoming about self-interest and what I can get. It starts becoming about the team and what God is doing in us and through us. And this idea that you share about this substance problem is, is, is a biblical thought. Paul commends a member of the church at Corinth uh, for having this addiction. His name was Stephanus. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 15 through 16, he says, I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. I like that language. I like that phrase. They have addicted themselves to to the ministry of the saints. So an addiction's okay in our lives as long as it's an addiction to this to culture love. of love yes. in the church. And the ministry what of God the saints. wants us to have. So, you know, my prayer, my prayer for our church is that all of us will become like Stephanus. Obviously, Paul mentioned him because mm-hmm. he wanted him to be an example. Yeah. And just think about it. He had his name recorded in the Bible as an example. Wow. And we're still reading about him over you know, 2,000 years later. Mm-hmm. And so my prayer is that we will all be like him and become addicted to this culture of love, this ministry of the saints. Because here's what I know. If we do this together, Together, church, will develop this culture of love that will become a model. Mm-hmm. That's what tends to happen when a church follows the Lord and is devoted to following the Lord. God raises up these local churches to become models. And God will be able to use our church to grow his kingdom in ways that exceed our imaginations. So here's the question. If this is what God wants from us, uh, how do we get it done in this day and age? Yeah. How do we develop this culture of love? It's a team sport. You have to have a place to practice this. It cannot be done just through the elders of the church or the deacons or the staff. It doesn't happen that way. The culture of love that God wants us to share at Together Church only happens as we all do our part. If someone's working against that, it's, it's really a battle to move past that. If we're all working on that together, it's amazing how fast that culture can pick up momentum. Come together, yeah. yeah, and we have to do it. You have to have that place to practice, and that place for you to start practicing this is in a small group. It's not reasonable for us to get together like this multiple times a week to try to practice this culture of love, but it's very reasonable for you to go form real-life relationships in a small group with people and to practice that culture of love in the small group. 
it is in our small groups that diverse types of people, just like we read about at the love feast, diverse types of people gathered together to share life, to share love, to share lessons, and to share meals together. Nearly everyone that first attends one of these small groups is ignorant about the culture of love that God has called us to create. But it's through these small groups that we create a relational environment where all believers have the opportunity to mature in their knowledge of the Bible and to mature in their love for one another. Culture is better caught than taught. If I just try to sit here and tell you about it, I don't know if I could even get it done. Yeah. Even, if, even if I asked you for hours of your time, I don't know if I could get it done. But if you could go see it, if you could go witness it, and then if you could start engaging in it, it would be life-changing for you, and it would be life-changing for the people around you as you become a contributor in that culture. Ultimately, we desire that Sunday mornings and special church events that we do and all those types of things we do as a church would result in people getting connected to this culture of love and discipleship in a small group. That's what we're aiming at. We want to see God's people connect with people who will help them grow spiritually and who will help them become mature in Christ. When people mature in the love of God, they become better friends, they become better citizens, they become better employees, they become better husbands and wives, they become better sons and daughters, and ultimately what happens when we invest in this culture of love and we let God have its effect on us is Jesus is glorified. I remember, you know, the first time that I really experienced this culture of love in, a, in the local church, and it was with my Sunday school teacher and his wife when I was a senior in high school because they really went beyond the, the duty that was expected of them. The duty that was expected of them was to teach a group of boys and girls mm -hmm. that were seniors in high school on Sunday mornings. Right. That was the duty that was expected. But they went way beyond that. And I was so fortunate to see uh, Jack and Sharon Moore, Martin live this out for me because I, you could have, I could have had a hundred sermons on this, mm -hmm. but I saw it right. being lived out in them. I went, oh, this is what discipleship's supposed to look at. Yeah. It's not just a class on Sunday mornings or a sermon on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights back then. no. This is, this is a, a loving relationship that we're engaging in and we're sharing life together. And it was them yeah. that planted this seed in me. You know, the mystery to me has always been as a lead pastor, as a senior pastor, is how do I get what Jack and Sharon were doing as a part of the church mm -hmm. and lead a church so that it's the norm. And that's what God wants. He yeah. wants this to be the normal kind. He wants Jack and Sharon Martin to be the normal people in the local church rather than being an exception. And for that to happen, you have to believe that God wants that for you. And you have to believe that disciple making is not just something we do, but it's who we are. And Jesus, concerning this culture of love, he even called his disciples by saying, come and see. He wanted them to catch the culture. Come and see. Will you do that? Will you come and see? You know, we're all broken people when it, when it comes to love. Mm -hmm. We're all broken. Uh, we're not, no one is born an expert in love. We're all born broken when it comes to love. And because of that brokenness that we're born with, we are, we are separated from a relationship with the God who is love. Because the Bible says God is love. 
And he cannot live in fellowship with darkness. And we're living in darkness if we're not loving the way that God loves. Wow, that's all of us. And that is the reason why the Lord sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. Because it's through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that each one of us can, can learn how to love the way that God loves. And it all begins with a change of heart that starts with a change of mind. Where we come to a point in our life where you go, you know what? I am not a very loving person compared to God. <laughs> now, I may be a very loving person com you know, compared to my alcoholic father or someone else in my life who's messing up a lot worse than what I think I am. But when it comes to God, you know, all of us fall short of the glory of God. And that's why you need a Savior. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit and you don't have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you can begin that right now. Isn't that great? That God can, can through your change of mind, God can work in your heart, change your heart, and you can begin to love in ways that other people go, wow, how that person has changed. Look at how they're loving everyone now compared to where they once were. We heard a wonderful testimony yesterday in our men's meeting from Alan Larkins about how God changed his heart. And you can see it in him. You can see the love of God that's growing in him because he came to this place in his life where he was tired, tired of living a loveless life and he wanted to be full of the love of God and he cried out to Jesus to save him and he did. Are you ready for that this morning? Have you ever experienced that? If you're ready for that, I want to lead you in a prayer this morning. Would you bow your heads in prayer right now? I want to lead you in a prayer right now to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's given us what we're sharing with you this morning because there's no greater example of love than Jesus. He is the manifestation, the ultimate revelation of who God is. And he's the ultimate revelation of the love of God. Are you ready? Are you ready to become what God intends for you to become when it, with, with regards to love? If you are right now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just lift your hand and say, I'm ready. I want to become what God wants me to be. And if you're lifting your hand right now, would you just pray this after me? Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm broken. I don't love like I should love. Lord, so much of my life I'm being, being selfish and self-centered, and I want that to change. I want you to change me right now. Lord Jesus, would you do that work in me? Would you grow your love in me? And make me what you want me to be. For you and to others, Lord. Let it be done. If you just prayed with me right now, I just want to celebrate that you have just become a child of God by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And what you need to do next is uh, what we saw witness this morning through baptism. You need to follow the Lord in baptism and profess your faith in him we want to give you an opportunity to do that we want to help you with that and the, the way that you can connect with us you can come to talk to one of us personally 
Or there's a connect card there in the back of the chair that you could fill out and say, hey, I've received the Lord Jesus Christ and I need to be baptized. And we'll get with you and we'll make a time for that to happen. Let's end with this, church. Those of you that are born again of the Spirit of God, has the Lord used this message this morning to call you up higher than where you've been? Is he calling you to love like the Lord Jesus Christ? And you know, maybe you've left your first love. I don't know, but there's something that you need to confess to the Lord this morning. Would you just do that right now? Would you just bow your head right now? And would you just say to the Lord, Lord, I wanna be your vessel of love to your church and to other people in this world. If that's what you want this morning, if you wanna be a vessel of God's love to his church, and to others in this world, would you just put your hand up and say, hallelujah, that's what I want. Hallelujah, that's what I want. Let it be done in me. Thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do. Let's all stand together. And Seth's gonna lead us in a song as we leave here this morning. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for being a part of the body of Christ. Wow, what a family, what a God, right? What a Lord we serve. Thank you, Jesus. Let's sing to the Lord.